All right, you guys can turn to Acts chapter 2. We'll continue through that chapter this morning. This is the second part of our time in Acts 2. First part was last week. We'll pick up where we left off in a few moments in Acts chapter 2. Well, students, you're at the point in the year where you are trying to figure out what organizations to be involved in, what student clubs to join. And it's interesting, I hopped on your website this week, on Texas A&M Student Organization website, and I learned that there are 1,025 recognized student organizations on the campus of Texas A&M. It's incredible. Over 1,000, and you've got to somehow pick between all of those. So how do you choose? Well, well you're going to ask any particular organization two questions. First of all, how do I join? What's required to come? And second, what do you actually do when you get together? Because I don't know whether I'd be interested. So how do I join? What do I do? Well, I, I spent a little time this week looking on the internet to see what are some interesting clubs out there in the nation as, as a whole, at universities in the nation that maybe you'd want to be part of. Here are some of the more interesting clubs here in the United States. First is the University of Michigan Squirrel Club. So this club gathers on campus to distribute peanuts to squirrels, which based on how aggressive our squirrels are around here, I don't feel like that's a good idea, but it's an easy club to join. Just Go buy a bag of peanuts and and you're in. That's all it takes. Another club, uh, Northwestern University's Happiness Club. So here at Northwestern, what what they do is students fan out all over campus handing out free lemonade and hugs. And I'm all for the lemonade part, but the hugs part sounds a little weird for any guys in that club. Is this just an excuse to go around hugging attractive co-eds? I don't know. It's a little creepy, but there's the Happiness Club. By far the most shady club, though, that I came across was Boston University's People Watching Club. And (laughs) This club, I kid you not, what they do every week is they gather on campus and then they all spread out to attend every other club's meetings. And at those (laughs) other meetings, they just watch people and then they all get back together and talk about what they saw. And that is weird. That is so weird that they had to come up with a club motto to try to explain it. So their motto, again, I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. Their motto, we're not creepy. We're just interested. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) let me give you a helpful hint, helpful little tip on life. If you have to tell people that you're not creepy, you are creepy. (laughs) There's no way out of that. So that club, you just got to be creepy and you're in. That's just weird. Um, Another club, Mustache Club at Carleton College. You just got to have a stash or a love of stashes. Uh, Another club, Harvard Tiddlywinks Society. So This club actually gathers to play children's games, tiddlywinks, every week. Apparently, all that you have to have to be in that club is no shame over being part of the tiddlywinks club. So I wouldn't fit in there. I couldn't be part of that particular club. Another one, this is a great one, Students Against Hippies in Trees. (laughs) This is an actual student organization at, you guessed it, Berkeley, because that's what they do out there in California. So, um... (laughs) All you got to do to not like that or to be part of that club is you just got to hate hippies and you're in. Uh, Another one, this one's a little disturbing, Um, Columbia University, students for an Orwellian society, their explicit goal is to create George Orwell's vision for the United States to make us a totalitarian society. So you just got to be a fascist to be in that club. That's a little 
creepy. Best name of any club I could find in the United States, the Shire of Grey Gargoyles Society for Creative Anachronism at the University of Chicago. To be part of this club, you must have a love of medieval dancing, costume making, sword fighting, and beer brewing, and you're in. So a lot of great clubs out there, students, a lot of things that you can join, but it leads us to ask about this group. This organization of of us in this room, this community that we call the church, I want to ask those same two questions of this group. How do you join and what do we do? How do you join and what do we do? How do you become part of this thing we call the church? And when you're part of it, what is it that we actually gather together to do? And so we're going to walk through both of those by looking at the remainder of Acts chapter 2. Peter and Luke are going to answer those questions for us, beginning with the question, how do you join the church? How do you become part of this organization, this body, this, this community of people? So Let's jump in. Let's answer that question. If you'll look with me, we're going to pick up where we left off last week by rereading verse 36. So look at verse 36. Peter has just been speaking about Jesus. He's speaking to a crowd of thousands of people, and he gets to the climax, the end of his speech here in verse 36. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Okay, so, G, so Peter has walked this audience of thousands of Jews through basic truths about Jesus that we call the gospel, good news about who Jesus is and what he did. We talked about that last week. The gospel is very simple, four points. Jesus lived, he died for sins, he rose from the dead, he now rules from heaven. Okay, so four truths about Jesus. Now we call that the good news, but to Peter's audience, that was bad news. Very bad news. Why? Because 50 days ago, they crucified that guy. This is the same crowd of people who 50 days earlier had shouted to Pilate, crucify him. All of a sudden, Peter's telling him, you you crucified your Messiah who is now king of heaven and earth. It's very bad. And so they are very torn up inside. You see that in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Pierced to the heart. That's a phrase that talks about intense emotional distress. They, They get a pain down in their gut because they suddenly realize they have done something very, very bad. They're torn up. Every one of them is wounded inside because they realize that they participated in the crucifixion of their Savior. And so this is what we would call conviction. They're suddenly convicted because they know they've done something very bad that that merits God's punishment. They should be punished for what they've done. And so they ask a very reasonable question. What shall we do? What do we do about this bad thing that we've done? It's a very reasonable question. It's the same question that you hear little kids say to a parent when they've disobeyed for a long time. Uh, My kids, if they've disobeyed throughout the day and I've warned them, but they keep disobeying, they keep disobeying, then finally I will say, stop. Let's go to your room. It's time for us to talk. They know what that means. It's kind of a code word. They know they're really in trouble now. And so their eyes get big and they take in a breath and then they ask me, Dad, please, is there anything I can do so we don't have to go to my room? They're desperate. They're afraid because they know now they're really in trouble and there's consequences that are about to happen. 
That's exactly what you have in this verse. It's a a question that rings with desperation. They realize suddenly that they've done something horrible. They crucified their Messiah and now they are worthy of the punishment of God. And so they plead with Peter, please, what can we do? And so how does Peter answer them? What is Peter's reply? Well, let's look at verse 38. Is there any way to escape the punishment that they deserve? Look at verse 38. Peter says, Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter doesn't say what we thought he would say. He tells us two things that they need to do, and neither of them is what we usually assume. How do you get forgiveness for sin? How do you get right with God? Well, we tell everyone, well, you got to believe. You got to believe in Jesus. That's what I say every Sunday. That's what they're telling our kids right now back there in Sunday school. To be saved from sin, you must believe in Jesus. That's John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, so that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So why doesn't Peter say believe? That's what we're always saying. Well, the reason that Peter doesn't say believe is because belief has already begun. Belief already began back in verse 37. They are already midway through the first step. They've already believed the facts about Jesus. How do you know that? Because they're afraid of him. They believe that Jesus really lived, he really died for sins, he really rose from the dead, he now really rules from heaven, and since they're the ones who crucified him, they are rightly terrified. So belief in the facts about Jesus has already begun, but now that belief must be completed. It's not enough to just know the facts about Jesus. There's a second step where you complete that belief. That second step is what Peter calls repentance. Step number two, they must repent. Now this one is tough. Repentance is a difficult word. A common question that I'll get from people is, do I have to repent to be saved? Does a person have to repent to go to heaven, to be saved? And that's a great question. The answer to that question is, well, it depends on how you define your terms. That's a a rule for you. When you're studying your Bible, when you're trying to understand how your Bible works, rule number one, you must define your words carefully. If you want to understand God's word, you've got to do a little homework. You've got to study your words so you understand what they mean. So let's talk about what this word repent means. It's actually a really simple word. In both Greek and Hebrew, all repent means is to turn. So you, you turn, you're going this way, and you turn around, and you go that way. That's repent in both Hebrew and Greek. But when it's used in the Bible of people, the sense of it, the idea that you get, is that you were going towards something bad. Now you need to turn around and head towards something good in order to escape God's punishment. That's what it means in the Bible. Turn from something bad to something good to escape God's punishment. But the word is used very broadly in the Bible. I'll give you some examples, lots of different ways that this word repent is used. Uh, In Matthew chapter three, beginning of the gospel, a guy named John the Baptist shows up and he begins to preach to the nation of the Jews, Israel. And he tells them that they need to turn away from their rejection of the Mosaic law. That's all that law, that legal stuff at the beginning of your Old Testament. They were not obeying it. And that was a problem because that was the constitution of their nation. They needed to turn from disobedience and obey the Mosaic law because their king was about to show up. Jesus was about to come. 
So there's repentance for a nation, obeying the law. Later, Acts chapter 17, Paul is in, uh, is in the city of Athens. He is speaking to people who trusted in idols. They trusted in false gods to save them. And so Paul tells them, repent. He's not talking about the Jewish law. He's telling him you need to turn away from trusting in idols to save you and trust the one true God to save you. So that's repentance in that passage. Later in the New Testament, Revelation 3, Jesus is going to show up and he's going to talk to a whole church, a church in the city of Laodicea. And he's going to tell that, that whole church of believers who've trusted in Jesus that they need to stop giving into pride and worldliness because they had drifted over the years and, and become prideful and worldly. They need to leave that behind and return to Jesus in dependence. Okay, so when you look at this word repent in the Bible, it's super broad. It can be used of nations, of churches, or of individuals. It can be used of believers or unbelievers. Lots of different ways it can be used. So in any particular passage, if you want to understand it, you have to study the context of that passage. So let's talk about that. Acts chapter 2. What does repent mean? What are the bad thing, what is the bad thing that they need to turn away from? Well, most people, many scholars, would say that what they need to turn away from is sin. They need to stop giving in to sin and turn to Jesus to be saved. They either have to stop sinning or they have to at least promise that they'll stop sinning and turn to Jesus to be saved. You see that in a lot of the commentaries. So uh, I'll give you a couple quotes from from famous men. I'm not going to name them because I don't want to create controversy. Very godly men, brilliant scholars. I just disagree with them on this point. When they were studying Acts chapter 2 verse 38, their conclusion is that what the gospel demands is a radical turn from sin to Jesus. So you got to turn away from all sin in your life. Leave it behind. Or as another one put it, Christian conversion thus is a turning from an evil lifestyle unto the Lord in total submission and obedience. Well, the problem is if that's what's required for salvation, then I'm not saved and neither are you because we keep sinning. I sinned today already. I have failed to give total submission and total obedience to Jesus every day of my life. What these authors failed to recognize is that this kind of repentance, this is what we're going to have to do every day for the rest of our lives. We keep sinning, so we're going to have to keep repenting from that sin, turning away from it back to Jesus, turning away from it back to Jesus every single day, multiple times a day throughout the rest of our lives. That kind of repentance is not how you get saved. It's not how you stay saved. It is just daily life for followers of Jesus. So Peter wasn't talking about turning from sin. And and you know that because when we read Acts chapter 2 last week, you may have noticed Peter never called them out for sin in general. He never called them out for immorality. He didn't call them out for sleeping around or getting drunk or being selfish or prideful or lazy or any of those things. He did not call out sin in general. He's not telling them to turn away from sin in general, like immorality. In fact, Peter only nails them on one thing. There's one sin they've committed that they need to fix to be saved. What was that? They rejected their Messiah. They rejected Jesus. That's, that is the one big thing that they have done wrong. And that's what repentance means in Acts chapter 2. They must turn away from their rejection of Jesus to instead accept Jesus as their Savior. So if you ask me, is repentance required for salvation? I will say yes, if you mean that. Yep, that's what all of us have to do. 
We have to turn away from our rejection of Jesus. People reject Jesus for any number of reasons. Maybe they don't believe in him. Maybe they don't think they need him. That's what the Jews in Acts chapter two thought. They, they thought they didn't need a savior. And so when a guy shows up to be their savior, they kill him. Because hey, we're righteous enough. We've got enough morality in our lives. We've earned heaven. We are worthy of it. They have to turn away from that rejection and instead humble themselves in humility, come to Jesus and say, please, Jesus, I need you, save me. That's repentance. You let go of your self-righteousness, of your works, and instead you turn to Jesus and trust. And so when I'm taking someone through the gospel, I will go through these two steps, believe the facts about Jesus and repent. I, believe, I begin with the, the facts about Jesus. I tell people the story of the good news of who Jesus is and what he did. But I don't stop there because it's not enough to just know the facts. The gospel is not a history lesson about some dude that lived 2,000 years ago. It's not enough to just know the facts. You've got to act on them. That's where repentance comes in. Now, I don't use the word repent because it's easy to misunderstand. What I do is I just tell people, now that you've heard the good news about Jesus, here's what I want you to do. I want you to say to God, God, I admit that I am a sinner who needs to be saved. And so please save me through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's repentance. You're humbling yourself. You're saying, I let go of of all of my self-righteousness. I let go of all of my worthiness. I let go of all of my good deeds that I thought were earning your favor, God. I let go of all of that, and I come to Jesus in humility and embrace him. I accept his gift of salvation that he's earned for me. That's repentance. So to be saved, you must believe the facts about Jesus, and then you must repent. You must humble yourself before him and plead, Jesus, save me. Okay, so how do you know if you've done that? Maybe you've been hearing about Jesus your whole life. You've known the facts about Jesus forever, but have you repented? Really easy to find out. Here's what I want you to ask yourself in your mind right now, just, just to yourself. Ask yourself if on the way home this afternoon, you get in an accident and die, and suddenly you are standing before God in heaven, and he asks you, why should I let you in? What will you say? If your answer includes anything good about yourself, your good deeds, that you're a nice person, that you've given to charity, that you came to church on Sunday morning. If it's anything about you, then you haven't yet repented because you're clinging to your worthiness, to your good works, to all that you've done to get you in. You've got to let go of that. You've got to admit, God, I'm a sinner. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. And instead, turn to God and say, please, in the name of Jesus, save me. Please, give me that gift of eternal life that Jesus earned for me by dying for me and rising from the dead. That's repentance. Okay, so to be saved, you must believe and repent. You must believe the facts about Jesus and turn to Jesus and ask for salvation. Okay, but Peter doesn't end there. He adds a third step, you may have noticed. What's that third step? Baptism. So we have another controversy to talk about, difficult word. He says, be baptized. What do we do with that? That's another common question that I get. Does a person have to be baptized to be saved? Is baptism required for salvation? Sure seems so based on this verse. This verse says you gotta be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. So lots of Christian denominations hold that water baptism is required for salvation based on this verse alone. So what do we do with this? 
Well, to understand what Peter is talking about with baptism, I have rule number two for you. So you want to understand your Bible. Rule number one is what? Define your words carefully. Rule number two, if you want to understand your Bible, do not force it to answer questions it wasn't meant to answer. When you're studying a passage, don't force questions on it that were foreign to it, that aren't why the author wrote that question. So here's the key. If you want to understand baptism in Acts chapter 2, what you need to understand is that no one in Peter's day was asking the question at the top of the screen. No one asked that question. There's no record of anyone in the first century of the church asking that question. Never crossed Peter's mind to ask Is water baptism needed to be saved? Do we need to do that? Is that what's saving us? It never crossed their mind to ask that because in Peter's day, baptism and salvation went hand in hand. They they didn't think of them as separate steps. How do I know that? Because look at verse 41. Look at verse 41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And that day. They believed, and like five minutes later, they got baptized. That's how it works in the book of Acts. There's not hours, there's not days, there's not months, there's not years that gap belief and baptism. They get baptized within seconds of believing. Just immediately, they dunk them in water. Acts chapter 8, Philip is traveling with an Ethiopian in a chariot, and the Ethiopian believes, and Philip has him put on the brake. Stop, there's some water, let's do it. Boom, it's done. That's how they do it in the book of Acts. And so as a result, when you read through the book of Acts, what you will find is that there were no unbaptized believers in the early church. So no one's asking, is baptism required for salvation? Because no one is unbaptized. They just all get baptized immediately. And so because of that, because there were no unbaptized believers and because there was no controversy over baptism, Peter could talk about salvation by pointing at its symbol, at baptism. Because baptism is the visible public symbol of salvation. He could point to the symbol to refer to the reality of salvation. It's just like today when we talk about wedding rings. When you saw me up here on the stage today, how do you know I'm married? Well, some of you know Julie, but some of you don't. Some of you are just visiting. How do you know I'm married? What's that on my hand? Now, in reality, maybe I'm not married and I just wanted to go buy a ring and put it on my hand because I'm weird. Maybe. You don't know. This isn't proof that I'm married. This is just a band. It's meaningless in and of itself. But you know that in our culture, the symbol, the ring, is so closely associated with marriage, the reality, that you see the ring and you know I'm married. But if I lose the ring, do I lose my marriage? No. My marriage is based on my vows, my commitment, not the ring. So a few months ago, some of you know Jimmy Fallon, host of The Tonight Show. He fell in his kitchen and tried to catch himself on the granite counter with his ring hand, and the ring caught, and it tore his finger. And when I say it tore his finger, it tore all the ligaments and veins inside. It's called ring occlusion. He had to go to the hospital, go straight into intensive surgery. They took veins out of his foot to graft them into his finger so he wouldn't lose it. He was in intensive care for 10 days. So I heard that, and I, I, I'll be, admit I flipped out a little. I was a little... little freaked out by that. (laughs) I don't like hospitals. So I thought, well, surely this isn't a very common thing. So I go onto the internet and I search ring occlusion, and that was a mistake. Don't don't do that. (laughs) Oh, the pictures are, I'll never get those out of my mind. And so 
It turns out it's not a one in a million thing. It's actually relatively common, especially for guys like me who like working on things like cars. Uh, they get a ring caught in a fan belt and the finger's gone. And so um, I freaked out and I took my ring off and put it in the drawer. I was done wearing a ring. <laughs> so <laughs> that's it. I told Julie, I still love you. We're still married, but I can't go there. So let's figure something out. So she gave me a couple options, a tattoo, which tattoos are great, but I'm scared of needles. So that wasn't an option. Or there's, there's this thing, which is a silicone wedding ring. And so it's this little safety ring. If it gets caught in a fan belt, just rips off. Nothing happens to my finger. So I love it. Um, I wear a ring now. I always wear this little silicone ring. Um, but there was about two weeks between when I freaked out and when my ring arrived in the mail. And during those two weeks, I didn't wear a ring. And so during those two weeks, was I not married? No. No, because marriage isn't about the ring. It's about the vows that you made. The ring is just the public symbol, the visible symbol of your marriage. Okay, so the ring doesn't make you married just like water baptism doesn't make you saved. Now, how do I know that? How do I know that it's not water baptism that saves you? Well, you can't figure it out from this passage. You turn to Acts chapter 10. Look at Acts chapter 10 real quick. Peter gets to speak to a Gentile audience, Cornelius and his family, and he's telling them about Jesus. He's walking them through the good news about Jesus. And let's pick it up, Acts chapter 10, verse 43. This is Peter speaking. Of him, that is, of Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. So this is the moment of their salvation because the Holy Spirit falling upon people, that's saved people. We know this is the moment that they're saved, that they're in God's family. Verse 45, all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speak with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Okay, so if you want to press your question, can you be saved without baptism? Acts chapter 10, yes, you can, because they're already saved before Peter brings the water. We know because the Holy Spirit is in them, on them, visibly. Okay, so is baptism required for salvation? No, it's not. It's just like a ring to a wedding. This is not what saves you. It's not required for being married. But even though baptism isn't required for salvation, we should ask ourselves, why would we go without it? I want you to picture a groom up here on the stage during a wedding ceremony, and he and his new wife have just exchanged their vows, and now it's that ring exchange time, so they're going to each put a ring on the other's finger, and he puts the ring on her finger, and then she's going to put the ring on his finger, and suddenly he says, whoa, 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 I'm glad that I married you, I'm really glad to be married to you now, but I'm not so happy about telling anyone else I'm married to you. I don't really want to wear a ring yet, because I don't want people to know that I'm committed to you, so we're just going to hold off on that, okay? So that, that would be a really jerky thing to do, but that's basically what an unbaptized believer is doing. You've come to believe in Jesus, commit your life to Jesus, and now that Jesus wants you to be baptized, you say, well, hold on, not ready to go there yet. I don't want anybody else to know. I don't want anybody else to see my commitment to you. Okay, so water baptism, even though it's not what saves you, it's incredibly important. It's just like wearing a ring for a married man. It shows the world, hey, I'm, I'm taken I've committed myself to my wife. I've committed myself to Jesus. So let me ask you, have you been baptized? Have you believed in Jesus and followed it with baptism? If not, I want to challenge you to fix that. 
Now, there's a lot of reasons why people don't get baptized. Most common is they're intimidated to get up on the stage. There's a big room, lots of people. Good news, you don't have to do it here. The early church was maybe 20 to 50 people gathering in someone's house. So let's do it that way for you. If you're intimidated to be up here in front of the whole church, let's get you together with your small group or your home group, people who know you well, a smaller gathering, and we'll baptize you there. Okay, so don't be intimidated about it. Second reason a lot of people don't get baptized as a believer is because they were baptized as a baby and they don't want to disrespect their parents. And so let me challenge you, if that's the case, how I think of it is is you need to be baptized now that you're a believer so you can complete what your parents started. See, when you were a baby, they baptized you, but that was a demonstration of their faith. You weren't old enough to exercise faith. So now that you are old enough, now you get to complete what they began by getting baptized yourself, showing that you have received faith from them. It's an honorable thing what they did for you when you were a child. Now let's finish it. Okay, so there's no reason not to get baptized. If you're a believer who hasn't been baptized yet, I really wanna fix that soon for you. So come talk to me or send us an email and we'll help you get baptized, whether that's up here on a Sunday or in your small group or fellowship group. Okay, so when you wanna join the church, this body, this group, how do you join three steps? Believe the facts about Jesus. Repent, which means let go of your self-righteousness, of your worthiness, and turn to Jesus and say, please, Jesus, save me. And finally, baptism. Let's get you baptized, not because that saves you, but because that's how we honor Jesus by declaring to the world that we're his. Okay, so that's how you join this body called the church. Now let's move to the second question that we asked. Anytime you wanna join a group, you need to know how do you join and you wanna know what do you actually do? When the church gathers together, what are our meetings about? Well, when I was at A&M my freshman year, I joined a group, student organization called the Aggie Outdoor Club, and the whole purpose of this club was to gather people who love to hike and to climb mountains. Um, but what I discovered, which, which I like to do, what I discovered is when they met every week in Rudder Tower, all that they would do is sit around and complain about living in a town with no mountains to climb that was full of humidity and mosquitoes. And, and so it was just a gripe session. That was every meeting. And actually the club motto was get the you-know-what out of College Station. That was like the whole goal of the club. And, and so I didn't stay in that club long because the meetings were really pointless. I don't want to get together every week with people who just complain about living in this town. No reason to be part of a club like that. Well, a lot of people have that same view of the church. They assume that when we gather together, what we do is we sing old songs and we talk about how righteous we are and how unrighteous everyone else is. Well, if that's the church, then I don't want any part of that. There's no reason for us to gather to do those things. But that's not what the church is about. Peter actually tells us, or Luke rather, tells us what the early church did. It's a model for us. What should we do when we gather together? What is the point of this gathering. So look with me. Let's pick it up. What does the church actually do? Pick it up in verse 42. Chapter 2, verse 42. Luke says that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all as anyone might have need. 
Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Quite a bit that's talked about here. I think it falls into five things. Five things that the church does. When we gather together, first we learn. That's why we get together, to learn together. They dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, we don't have the apostles anymore. They died a couple thousand years ago. But we do have their teaching right here. That's what this book is. It's the apostles' teaching. And so when we gather together, we sit around this book to read it, to meditate on it, to learn from it, to apply it to our lives because we believe this isn't just a book, right? This, this is God's word, which means the words on the page were breathed by God into letters and words and sentences and paragraphs. This is the word of God, and so it is as true as God is true. It is as powerful as God is powerful. It, it commands us and compels us and shapes our lives, and so everything at our church is designed to be around this book. On Sunday mornings, we gather around it. In small groups, we gather around it. And let me challenge you, as we think about this book, every one of us in this room needs some smaller group of people that you gather together with regularly to study this book, to read it, to memorize it, to meditate on it, to apply it to your life. Now, we have a lot of options here at the church. You don't have to do it with us, but we'd love to have you. We have Bible studies, Sunday morning groups, we have home churches, we have college Bible studies, we got all kinds of opportunities for you. If you are not yet connected to a small group of believers who is studying the word of God, then I'm gonna challenge you, there's a card right in front of you right now, in the back of the seat in front of you, and it says get connected on one side. If you will write us your name, your phone number, and your email address, and then put it in one of the wooden boxes at the back of this room, we'll call you or email you this week. And we'll help you get connected to a group here at the church where you can learn from God's word. That will change your life. That will transform you. If you'd rather just research it yourself, you can go to our website, click connect. All the options are there. So the church gathers first to learn. We learn together. Second, we pray together. The church prays together because we believe that prayer changes things. We don't know how. That's way too big for us. Sovereignty of God, all that kind of stuff, way too big. We don't know how it does it. We just know that it does. We believe that prayer changes the world for the better. And so we get together to pray for ourselves, for our families, for our church, for our neighbors, for our town, and for our world. We pray because we believe that prayer brings good. And so we're going to gather together to prayer, to pray. Prayer is not just a filler or Uh, transition or what you do to get everybody to be quiet. It's the lifeblood of the church because prayer, it's like the most important thing you do. It's your opportunity to partner with God in shaping the future. It's pretty cool. Okay, so we gather together to pray. We gather together to worship. To worship means that you lift high God, his reputation. We, We worship together by singing, so that's what we were doing this morning. We also worship together through communion, which is mentioned in this passage. It talks about how they broke bread. That's communion. They were celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, they did it as often as they gathered, which was probably almost every day. So they did communion on an almost daily basis. Some churches do it every week. We do it every month. Other churches do it less frequently than that. There is no particular frequency commanded in Scripture. A lot of people ask me, why don't we do it every week? 
Bible doesn't tell you what we have to do. Um, we do it once a month because we're jealous to protect the sacredness of communion. And sometimes when you do something every week, it becomes a ritual to you. We don't want that to happen with communion. So we do it every month, but maybe in the future we'll move to every week. Who knows? There's, there's no rule about that. What matters is not how often you celebrate communion. What matters is when you do, you mean it. That when you take communion, that you recognize that it's really significant and really important to God. And so you dedicate yourself to it and and you do it meaningfully. That's what makes worship matter. Whether you're singing a song or taking communion, you mean it. And so we gather together to lift high the name of God, to worship together. Fourth thing that we see the church doing, we gather together to share. As members of the church, we share our possessions and, and our money with one another to take care of those in need. So you see that quite radically in Acts chapter two. Did you notice what they did? They They went out and sold all they had, their land, their houses, their possessions. They sold it, so they liquidate it to cash, and then they bring the cash to the church to distribute to those in need. That's that's a radical step. Why did they do that? Well, the reason that they did that, context matters here. Right before this passage, like 10 verses ago, the church numbered 120 people. Now the church numbers 3,120 people. And most of those 3,000 new converts were not from Jerusalem. Remember, they're Jews who came from other cities all over the world to celebrate Pentecost, but now the Pentecost feast was over. They needed to go home. Their money's done. They don't have any more money for hotels or food, but they can't go home yet because there's no churches in their homes and they don't yet know much about Jesus. They've had one little speech. I mean, they don't know much. And so they need to stay in Jerusalem for at least a few weeks, if not a few months, to learn from the apostles before they go home because they don't have Bibles yet. They don't have anything. And so for them to stay in a town that's not their own, that is gonna take some money. 3,000 people, you gotta shelter them and feed them for months and you got a church that was just 120 people. It's gonna take a lot of resources. So the church did an incredibly radical thing. They went and sold all they had to house and feed the 3,000 new converts. So is God calling you to go sell all you have? Maybe. He called them to do that. He calls people to do that from time to time. I don't know. What I do know is that God is calling every single one of us as members of this community to share, to share our possessions and our wealth with people in need. We should be giving sacrificially. And that starts with people who are near you. You always begin with your neighbor, right? The words of Jesus. So a coworker or a neighbor, literally neighbor, or a family member or a classmate or someone here at the church who is in need, you you sacrifice financially to take care of them, to, to care for them. But if you have enough to take care of them plus more left over or if you don't have anyone nearby who needs your financial help, then God wants you to look further. Look outside of the circle of those close to you to find someone in need that you can care for. And that takes us back to the beginning of the service this morning. When Chris McGuffey talked to us about the refugee crisis in Europe, all of these refugees coming out of Syria and Iraq who are in desperate need. Now many of you have been Following the news, you've seen the images and you feel completely overwhelmed. It's such a massive problem. You feel anxious about it. You feel uh, just worked up about this massive problem. Others of you feel the opposite. You see the images and you think, man, there's nothing I can do about that. So you're apathetic. I can't solve it, so why try? Well, God is calling us to a middle place. He's calling us to a middle place where we recognize we can't fix that problem. That's way too big for us. Only God can fix something like that. But 
that doesn't mean we can be apathetic. Even though we can't do everything, we can do something. We can't care for everybody, but we can care for someone. And so I wanna invite you, if you are able to give, to send an email, Guff put this address up earlier, globaloutreach, globaloutreach at grace-bible.org. What we're gonna do, if you'll email that address, just say, send me info. We're gonna send you a list of a number of organizations that we have carefully vetted that are sheltering, feeding, housing, caring for refugees coming out of Syria and Iraq. They'll take care of their physical needs and then they'll share Jesus with them. Okay, so if if you have resources to give, let's do something. Can't do everything, but we can do something. So as members in the church, we share what is ours with those in need. Okay, so just send an email to that address. Finally, the fifth thing that you see the early church doing, when we gather together, we witness. We work together to witness for Jesus to a world who doesn't know him. We talked a couple weeks ago about how actually that's the only one on the list that explains why you're still on earth. The first four of those things, you'll do all those better in heaven. You're gonna pray, worship, learn, and share better when you're in heaven. So why did God leave you here? Because you can witness only here. No one to witness to in heaven. They all know him already. But here on earth, there's lots of people who don't know Jesus. And so God has left you here so that you can tell them the good news about Jesus Christ. And so I wanna remind you of the challenge that we have in front of us this whole semester, all fall. Every time I'm up here, I'm gonna remind you of this. This fall, what we're doing is we're praying for our three. So so you're three. Who are your three? They're three people that God has brought into your life who don't yet know Jesus. And I'm challenging you every single week this fall, I want you to pray for those three people by name. I want you to pray that God will open their eyes to the gospel, that he'll remove the, the blindness from their eyes so they'll see how beautiful and wonderful the gospel is. And then I want you to pray that God will use you to be a witness. So sometime this fall that God will give you courage and opportunity to tell them about Jesus and tell them your story of coming to know him. Okay, so I'm gonna close this in prayer and in the prayer, I'm gonna give you a moment of silence to pray for your three, not generically, but pray for three people by name that God would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel and that he'd use you to share Jesus with them. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you sent your son to die for our sins and rise from the dead so that we could have eternal life as a free gift. We humbly acknowledge that we are sinners who cannot save ourselves. We are not worthy of heaven and so we cling to you. When we stand before you, God, our only answer to the question of why should you let us into heaven is Jesus. That's the only reason. We thank you for the gift of your son. But Lord, we grieve for this world that doesn't yet know him. We grieve for the people in our lives who don't yet know the the love and grace of Jesus Christ. And so right now, Lord, we're gonna take a moment and pray for three people by name who we ask you to open their eyes to Jesus and, and to give us a chance this semester to share Jesus with them. Heavenly Father, we believe that you can fulfill this prayer. We believe that you can save all three people on each of our lists. We believe that you can save 3,000 people this fall in this church just like you did in Acts chapter two in one day. You're the same God. You have the same power. And so we pray. Please, God, use us, use our church to share the good news of Jesus with the people of this town. Please open their eyes. Draw them to your son. Please save thousands through Grace Bible Church this fall, Lord. 
all for the glory and renown of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. All right, God bless you guys. Be a witness this week.